to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been in court? I have. Now, I know what you're thinking, but no, it wasn't as part of an elaborate heist to get Wilma Wildcat's costume, break into the McHale Center, and steal the 1997 Men's Basketball National Championship trophy, where I was arrested as part of the plan so as to provide myself with the perfect alibi. No, unfortunately, I don't have a Tyler's 17 heist story to share with you this morning. Instead, the reasons that I've been to court, they're much less fun. I went to court for traffic tickets. Yep, I've gotten tickets for excessive speeding, an improper stop, a failure to yield, which resulted in an accident, illegally parking in my girlfriend's driveway, and careless driving, which is legalese for falling asleep. Now, every time I've gotten a ticket, I've gone to court to contest it. And most of the time, this wasn't because I was not guilty, but because if you go to the court date, they will just about always lessen the fine, drop it if the cop doesn't show up who gave you the ticket, or they'll allow you to take a defensive driving course instead, which will keep your insurance going from going up for years. So trust me on this. It is always worth it. <laughs> go to court, take your time, deal with it. That said... None of these experiences of going to court have been the same. One time, I just walked up to a window and signed a form agreeing to plead to a lesser charge. Now, unfortunately for all of you, that was in Douglas County, Colorado, so don't ever expect that experience here in Tucson. One time, I showed up, and there was just no judge there. I walked into a room that was completely empty except for a clerk who had me sign in and completely waived my fine. I was in and out before I even had to pay for parking. Good thing, too, because that was a time when I definitely did not do anything wrong. I was ticketed for parking in my girlfriend's driveway and blocking the sidewalk in a house and a place where there was definitely no sidewalk. It was absurd. Then there was one other time when I had gotten a ticket for speeding and for passing in a school zone. I was driving around Tucson for one of like the first times ever when I took a wrong turn and then I ended up in a school zone. And school zones here in Tucson are completely different from in Colorado where I grew up. In Colorado, school zones don't just magically appear and disappear around a half a block at a time at different times of day. No, in Colorado, school zones just exist in the zones where schools are. So I got a little confused when all of a sudden I was in a school zone and I, I got a little messed up. But then again, the cop who pulled me over was confused too. Because while I was pulled over, waiting for them to give me my ticket, I watched the two cops in the car behind me pull out this massive rule book, apparently trying to figure out what it was I was guilty of. Eventually, they settled on speeding in the school zone and failure to obey a traffic control device. Because apparently I failed to obey a sign that said no passing in a school zone. Now, I wanted to go into court and argue that second one because I had not passed anyone. I had been, a, I'd been ahead of a car in the next lane and because I didn't slow down enough, I ended up a little bit farther ahead of them from where I started. That's not passing. I did not overtake anyone. 
And I really just felt like it was a dumb way to tack on an entire extra fine for me. So I prepared my impeccable logic and I went into court a couple of months later, prepared to argue my case before the judge. And that is not how it went. I am no Atticus Finch or L. Woods. Instead of hearing my brilliant legal argument, the judge didn't even talk to me. He talked to the cops who pulled me over and asked them, since I was charged with failure to obey a traffic control device, could they confirm that there was actually a sign that said no passing? They cannot confirm that. They, didn't, they couldn't affirm that a sign like that even existed. So the judge dropped the citation and I was free to go. After all, I cannot fail to obey a sign that does not exist. But then he did, he called me up and he explained whether or not that sign existed, that it was illegal to pass in a school zone. And furthermore, that passing in a school zone, in a Tucson school zone, has a completely different definition. What I did qualified as passing. So somehow, my impeccable argument was in fact very, very peccable. I got off on a technicality. But at the same time, that's kind of awesome. This judge who ran the courtroom, this arbiter of the law, got me out of trouble. I was guilty, but I felt a little bit proud of it. I got off. But there are other things that I've done where I was guilty that I don't feel so great about. You know, I mentioned one of my tickets was for falling asleep while driving. That, that story doesn't end with me just waking up and then getting pulled over. That ended, me, ended with me hitting the median and flipping my car. It ended with me in the ER, somehow okay, with nothing but a wound on my head that looked ugly, but was ultimately too shallow to be of any real concern. It turned out to be a moment of grace as I felt God's loving presence and I felt God getting my attention. But that very easily could have turned out very different. What if someone else had been there? What if instead of hitting a median, I hit oncoming traffic? What if it wasn't a wake-up call for me, but if I had killed someone? What if I'd ended in jail? What if I'd lost my faith from that experience? What if I lived the rest of my days racked by guilt, unable to forgive myself? Sometimes when we do wrong things, we feel awful, and we struggle to let go of the guilt and shame around the repercussions of our bad choices. Not just when we are unsafe while driving, but when we are selfish and we cost ourselves relationships, or, or when we fight with our family and we say things that we cannot take back, or when we get caught in a vortex of addiction with porn or alcohol, drugs, or other vices that can entrap and harm us. There are many things that we do that cannot be resolved by simply pleading our case or going to court, which end in us feeling guilt and shame, like we are empty and worthless, unworthy of love and relationship. But that's not what the Bible tells us. In scripture, God assures us over and over again that we are forgiven. But if that's true, then why does it still feel so heavy? How do we reconcile the shame and guilt we feel with Jesus' death for all of our sins? Is there such a thing as a guilty Christian? And that's what we're going to look at in our series, Verdict Not Guilty. What does it mean for Jesus to die for our sins? 
How are we supposed to live in light of that? How are our communities shaped by that? Let's start to explore those questions this week. I'm sure we won't answer all of them perfectly or completely. You may walk away from here unsatisfied. These are some of the most difficult questions of faith that we will have. But let's do our best. And as we get started, let me pray. Dear God, we know we are forgiven, but we don't always feel like it. We all feel guilt and shame. We struggle to love you and one another. We know that you died for us, but we don't understand. How does that heal us? Why did you do that? Help us to experience your grace here today. Allow us to experience your love this day and every day. In your holy name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Let's start at the beginning with a story about trees. The story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. And the biblical authors want us to see this garden as a type of temple. The top is the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most intense. And that's where we find the tree of life. So what's this tree all about? Well, it represents God's own life and creative power that is made available to others. In fact, God's first command is that humans eat from all of the trees, including this one. So you're ingesting God's own life. That sounds intense. Yeah, this meal transforms the one who eats it, or in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Okay, but on the way to the tree of life, the humans have to pass by another tree called the tree of knowing good and bad. And God says that eating from this tree will kill you. How does it do that? Well, it represents taking the authority to do what is good in your own eyes. And when humans do that, it leads to broken relationships, violence, and death. It all begins in a garden. God created Adam and Eve in a deeply personal and intimate act. God breathes life into Adam, forms Eve from his bones, and gives them this garden where they are able to walk in oneness with God and one another. They were literally filled with the presence of God, able to eat from the tree of life. Genesis tells us, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. In the garden, Adam and Eve were naked, and it was good. Everything in the garden was perfect and exactly as God intended. And clothes and shame were not a part of that. Now, I'm not advocating for DR to become a nudist colony by any means. I'm just acknowledging that our original and natural state was intimate and nude. Anyone who has spent time around children who have considerably less shame than us know this. If you show up at Ryan and Megan's house, there's a better chance than not that you will find a child in nothing but a diaper or underwear. And ask my wife Megan about her time in DR Kids when the children decided that like ducks say quack and cows say moo, moms say put your clothes on. But there is also a false tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And though they know that they are not to eat of that tree, they are deceived and told, 
You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. This is a tricky statement. The serpent tells them that they will know both good and evil. They will see right from wrong and justice and justice. They'll see what's bad in the world and in themselves and and in each other. But he does not tell them that they will have the power to do anything about it. Instead, they will be like God in just this one way, but separated from God in their disobedience. And then they take from this false tree of life. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was right there with her and he ate it too. They sinned. They did it. They are definitely guilty like I was. And their sin has immediate consequences. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. The first consequence of sin was shame. Adam and Eve looked at each other's naked bodies, saw how they were different and were ashamed. And so they hacked together some piecemeal clothes from leaves so as to cover their shame. And then the second Consequence is that they must leave the garden and humanity cannot ever return. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This serpent is a trickster. He is right that eating the fruit did not immediately result in death, but the consequence of sin is death nonetheless. Only this is not death understood as a cessation of life, but a separation from life and from the source of life, God. Shame and separation. These are not arbitrary punishments given out in Genesis 3. These are the natural consequences of sin, the source of shame and brokenness, which separates us us from God, the source of all peace and life. Adam and Eve try to hide from God and perhaps avoid the consequences, but they cannot hide for long as God finds them in their flimsy, pieced-together fig leaves attempting to cover their shame. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? When I hear God's question, who told you that you were naked? I don't hear harshness or anger, but instead deep, deep sadness. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you? that this was wrong, that, that you are wrong, that you are not beautiful and beloved. God is brokenhearted by their sin. It breaks them away from God and from God's design. But why can't God just be like the judge that I talked about earlier? Why can't God just make all the punishment for their guilty choices go away? If God is all-powerful, as we are told that God is, why does God not just undo it all? 
It may not always make sense, but the truth is that this cannot just simply be undone. God created an ordered and rational universe. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. What we do has consequences. If we are to separate ourselves from life, there is going to be death. If, if God simply undid the universe, whatever we messed up, well, then there would be no choice. And without real consequence, we, we cannot have real choices because our choices have no effect. And then without true choice to choose both good and, and bad, there is no real agency or chance to choose love. Is that actually what we want? Do we want a, a world where our actions don't make any difference? I, I choose to hurt you, but can't. I, I try to love you and nurture you, but can't. We are created in the image of God, so we can actually impact the world. If we ask God to undo Adam and Eve's sin, we are asking God to undo us. There would be no us if God simply wiped it all away. Furthermore, what happened was more than just a rule being broken. This isn't like breaking the speed limit, a man-made rule set by mutual agreement, but which is ultimately in the universe arbitrary. Those rules can be swept aside by a benevolent judge. But the rules we break with sin are deeper. They are like the laws of gravity, which if broken, break the order of the universe. Theologian John Stott describes the disordering that sin causes like this. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. When God finds Adam and Eve, we see that God has another solution. God knows they cannot remain in the garden. God knows the consequences they will face. Life will be harder. They will work and toil to survive. They will fight and bicker in their relationship. And one day they will die. But before God sends them away in their fig leaf clothes that I imagine are already falling apart by this point, God does one more thing for them. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. In their shame, God bends down and carefully stitches together and creates new clothes of animal skin that will last and protect them. And before this moment, there has been no death. Death is the consequence of sin, yes, but the first death that we see in the narrative is not Adam or Eve, but these animals that God sacrifices to cover their shame. Now, perhaps that image is troubling. God killing some creatures for clothes for Adam and Eve. Don't really have resolution for that. I don't have words of comfort. I can't make all of this something that's easy to wrestle with. But also understand that this is not the last time God would sacrifice something innocent and precious to God for our sake. Instead, the sacrifice of animals in the garden begins a cycle that points to something far greater. Many years and many generations later, God invites the children of Adam and Eve into a partnership a covenant as this story of trees continues. Well, later on in the story, we meet a man named Moses and he encounters God in a desert tree on top of a mountain. Oh, you mean the burning bush where Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground. 
Yeah, it's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power, just like the tree of life. And God tells Moses, bring your people up to this mountain so we can form a partnership. And this partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they follow gods of their own making or receive life from the true God? And in this story, they give their allegiance to an idol. And it's just the first of many. The story goes on to show generation after generation choosing gods of their own making. And these idols were usually placed on tall hills like beautiful trees. But they're false trees of life that lead the people into self-destruction, exile, and death. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. It was a partnership and covenant for the purpose of reclaiming creation from its bondage and decay. On God's side of this covenant, God promises to be faithful to the people, to bless and preserve them. In turn, God calls them to be faithful to God. So God invites the people into a relationship with clear instructions and boundaries. These are not rules about taking away life and freedom from the people, but about setting things right and leading them into life, much like the law of the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. It is a partnership that harkens back to God's original blessing of Adam and Eve back in the garden. And because the people are still separated from God, from the source of life, these rules include guidelines about animal sacrifice. These sacrifices covered a multitude of purposes, from sacrifices for blessing to cleansing to atonement of sin. Now, this may seem barbaric, but when the consequences of sin is separation from the source of life, death must follow. God gave the people the act of sacrifice that allowed for the cost and consequence of their sin to be paid and covered, just as God sacrificed the animal in the garden to provide clothes for Adam and Eve. Brokenness begets death, sadly, but at the same time, God's rules around sacrifice had a clear boundaries and limits on them so as to prevent escalation. No one would have to wonder if they gave enough or if the God who received their sacrifice demanded more. But at the same time, there are these idols that don't give life, but instead demand greater and greater sacrifice. They are false trees of life that give only death, shame, and separation. Yet the people kept turning back and, and back again to these false trees. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. Is there any hope? Well, in the midst of our despair, our shame, and our separation, God comes to us. God says, we will solve the problem. We will go to them. We will die for them. Yes, God comes to us. God comes to join us in the flesh. God does not send a representative. God sends God. John describes it to us. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this is a great risk for God, as we read in the next verse. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. God became vulnerable to us, to being rejected, to having love unrequited. God took a risk. God does not have to do this. God can start over with a new creation and wipe this one out. God does not need us, but God wants us. God loves us. And God risks us rejecting that love and comes anyway. Is there 
any hope. Well, let's turn now to the story of Jesus. He came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. So Jesus thinks of himself as the tree of life. Yes, this is what he meant when he claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. And Jesus invited people to eat from him. Yeah, he was inviting people to trust him and be transformed by his life. But Jesus also exposed how corrupt humans are, how much they love false trees of life. And so Jesus presented people with a new choice between life or death. And this time, they don't just choose death. They also chose to attack the one who sustains all of life. Yes, Jesus is led up to the top of a hill where he dies upon a tree. The cross is the sad and violent result of humanity's desire to do what is good in our own eyes. The tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. In this, we see the true nature of God's love for us. God does not start over with us. God does not wipe out our choice. God comes to us to win our love and adoration. God is utterly unlike the idols, the false trees of life that, are, that we are often worshiping instead. Pastor Tim Keller captures this distinction, writing, Therefore, the God of the Bible is not like the primitive deities who demanded our blood for their wrath to be appeased. Rather, this is a God who becomes human and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. This is different from the judge making my case for me and helping me to be clear to my ticket. The judge didn't have a stake in my ticket. He, he did not have a cost to pay or any sacrifice to make. But God has a stake. God created us to be in perfect relationship with one another and with God. It was by our sins, our mistakes, our selfishness, and our brokenness that this perfect relationship was lost. And the consequence is that we are separated from the source of life and we experience death and shame. And yet Jesus endures the most shameful, painful death in human history upon the cross. It is such a miserable death that he feels separated from God the Father as he cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is the miracle of the cross. If sin is human beings substituting ourselves for God and putting ourselves where only God deserves to be, God's response is substituting God's own self for us and taking the place where we deserve to be. There was a debt to be paid. God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be borne. God himself bore it. This is also the great irony of the cross. In the ultimate act of, our, of human sin, of humanity's desire to do what is right by our own eyes, this wooden instrument of death becomes a new tree of life. It is a great irony, a great reversal. On the cross, Christ wins through losing, triumphs through defeat, achieves power through weakness and service, comes to wealthy and giving it all away. Jesus' death on the cross ends the cycle of death that began in the garden. Jesus' sacrifice does what no animal can. When it depends on us doing it ourselves, using fig leaves, sacrificing animals, turning to idols, we accomplish temporary fleeting solutions at best, or we create false trees of life at worst. 
When God intervenes from making clothes from animal skins leading up to Jesus' self-sacrifice, we experience an eternal solution. Yes, we were guilty. It can't just be written off. But instead of making us pay, God takes our punishment. The judge steps off the bench and takes our place on the stand. The arbiter of the law is our arbiter of grace, as we are declared permanently not guilty. Our shame is covered and our separation is bridged. In Romans, we can read our new sentence. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Well, who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not guilty. No charges can be brought against those redeemed by Jesus upon the cross. Nothing can separate us from our God who comes to us. Dr. Cloud and Dr. Townsend, they sum it up for us. Notice the key points here. No charges can be brought against those who are justified by believing in Jesus. And nothing can separate them from his love. No condemnation. The verdict is not guilty. No separation, no anger or wrath. In other words, those who have a relationship with Jesus have no reason to fear condemnation or guilt. The New Testament makes this point over and over again. So how do we live in light of our newfound innocence? The answer is entirely different from how we lived before. But that's a big ask. So I encourage you to start trying some practices today and this week to internalize the message of the cross, the story of trees that I've been sharing with you and to take it to help you take it from your head to your heart. First, we know that our shame is wiped away. Shame tells us that we are separated from God when we aren't, that we are unlovable and unforgivable when God loves and forgives us. In the Garden of Eden, God was still right there when Adam and Eve felt shame and hid. God is right there with us, clothing us in God's love. The children whom God has already washed clean. So I invite you to meditate on the truth that the Bible teaches us. Meditate on the truth of God's forgiveness, that our shame is separated from us as far as the East is from the West. Practice replacing the narratives of shame with new stories of grace and love. Tell yourself that I am not a worthless sinner. I am a beloved child of God. Write that on your hand or on your arm. Write it on your bathroom mirror. 
If you are struggling with shame, place a reminder of God's great love for you wherever you will see it and be reminded of that truth often. Second, we know that we no longer have to be separated from God. Instead, God invites us to be near. So respond to God's invitation and engage in practices of nearness. Set aside time for silence and solitude. Practice being alone with God. God desires to be with us. Often when I am home, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's reading, watching TV, working on my computer, if I'm on the couch, my cats will come and curl up on my lap or on my chest and fall into deep contentment marked by a low humming purr. They want nothing more than to be with me. And when they do, I have no choice but to sit and enjoy their presence. I cannot move. I cannot go anywhere. God likewise desires to simply be with us, to be near us. As you sit with God, I invite you to pray honestly to God. There is no form to follow, but honestly, just talk to God as if God were a person sitting next to you. Tell God you feel ashamed. Tell God you feel weird being there with God. Tell God you're sad or or you're happy. Share your struggles and your joys with God. You can also try to practice a daily office and return constantly to God's presence throughout your day. The daily office is a practice of rhythms, of returning to God's presence. It starts with silence and a quiet space where you can be alone, and then it involves anything that helps you connect to God. That can be a devotional or reading scripture, reading a chapter of a Christian book, writing and reflecting in a journal. It does not have to be long. It can be five to ten minutes repeated daily or even two to three times a day. Allow God to take away your shame. Allow God, allow yourself to be near to God. On the cross, our sin is forgiven. Our shame is taken away. Our separation from God is bridged. The cycle of death and sacrifice is ended. We are declared not guilty. But the cross is not the final tree. The story of the trees does not end. Instead, a seed is planted. But Jesus said that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. So to defeat death, Jesus went through it. And now this new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat from it, but it will mean passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old way of being human to die. So that a new humanity can grow in its place. Yes, Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do you eat from this tree, you're invited to become a part of it, helping produce its fruit so that his life and love can spread through us to others. And so the story of the Bible ends in a new garden which is also a kind of temple, with the tree of life at its center, providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. Allow that seed to grow inside you and bear fruit. Allow that seed to nourish and sustain you. We may have started this morning in court before a judge, but we end here in a garden with the tree of life. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I 
Thank you this morning as we are here together. Thank you for this message of your love. You take away our shame. You bridge the separation between us and you. Sin separates us from the source of life. It it stirs up feelings of shame and brokenness in us. But Lord, you offer peace. You you restore wholeness. You, you, You come to us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you come to us, Lord. I pray for everyone here, Lord, wherever they're at, Lord, that they just hear that message. They hear that no matter where they are, however they feel about God, that they know, Lord, that they hear that, that you come to them. You come to us. That you love us so dearly to come to us on on this rescue mission. I just pray for that seed of life to grow in us, Lord. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.